This podcast is brought to you by Knowledge at Wharton. Our guests today are Greg Shea and Mark Schneider, and we're going to talk to them about uh, the article that they have written uh, in Knowledge at Wharton about the deployment of artificial intelligence in healthcare. Uh, Greg and Mark, thank you so much for joining us today on Knowledge at Wharton. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, so, Mark, maybe I could begin with you. Uh, people describe AI as the new electricity that is transforming every industry. Uh, how is this technology changing healthcare? Well, the most immediate impact is really in image uh, analysis and recognition. So, radiology, dermatology, and in the paper we wrote about an application for looking at uh, diabetic retinopathy, um, but the analysis of the image and uh, classification is being done by machine now for a task that was formerly done uh, by experts such as ophthalmologists. Okay. Um, thank you. And uh, Greg, uh, you write in the article that in order to realize the full value of technology infused with AI, health systems need to adopt a systems-based approach. What exactly does that mean? So we could look at a change, uh, even as fundamental a change as AI, uh, narrowly, uh, which sounds a, a little counterintuitive to talk about AI as being uh, narrow, but as, as only about the technology. Uh, we've encountered this problem before, uh, um, in the, many times in the past, where technology gets employed do you use the, the technology simply to do what you were doing a little faster, for example? Or do you use the technology as the occasion for thinking more broadly about what now is possible? Uh, uh, to quote a uh, classic article by Hammer, don't automate, obliterate. Uh, so that the automation can either make the old world simply run faster, or you can obliterate it and rebuild it. And Mark is a physician, I think, is, is particularly well-equipped and positioned around this technology. So if you thought about it in a systems fashion, a variety of other changes become possible, and you could drive a very different kind of healthcare, almost using AI as the excuse. It's not an excuse, it's an enabler, but uh, it has much broader, but you'd have to think about it more broadly. You have to think about it in terms of model we talked about there, which is a broader systems approach to thinking about its impact. Uh, no, question for, for both of you, actually, but Mark, maybe you could uh, uh, maybe we could start with you first. Historically, health systems have viewed technology as an expense. And in your paper, you write that health systems are moving from a fee-for-service model to a fee-for-value model. Uh, what's driving the shift, and what are the implications for healthcare providers and other stakeholders? The cost of healthcare, especially in the United States, is just unsustainable. Uh, the rate of rise and the absolute amount that we spend for the results that we get, um, it, it can't go on. And so what's exciting about uh, the introduction of AI, especially at the point of care, is the ability to simultaneously increase access to care. Uh, in, this, in the paper, we talk about screening for diabetic retinopathy, but we can do it at a much lower cost. And this has not been possible before. 
And that's what's so exciting about this um, this technology at this point. The value is that we're now reaching more people. We're providing better care, and um, we're doing it in a way that is not necessarily tied to um, a charge or fee-for-service type model. We're trying to look at the total cost of care and drive that care to a place where it's best delivered and lowering the overall uh, expenditure by the system. And one way that that would do that, back to your your original question regarding systems, is you think about, for example, rather than having the specialists do this kind of work, that actually you may not uh, need a physician to do this kind of work, but you'd have to re- redesign the, the system so that somebody who was not a physician was using AI to do an initial far less expensive take on whether you're looking at a real problem regarding, uh, regarding the eye. And if you are, then that gets referred. But as, as, uh, as known in the paper, you, there's, there's a significant, even 80% or higher, percentage of the scans which won't produce that. So why involve the very expensive resource of a specialist to do that? But to make that change, I have to think about what's the role of the technician, what's the role of the nurse, what's the role of the primary care doctor. So I'm thinking far more broadly regarding what this technology would enable, uh, including cost, but it's also availability and access as well. As as both of you mentioned, uh, in the article you cite the specific use case uh, to illustrate your point, the screening for diabetic retinopathy. Uh, So how is AI changing the way diabetics are examined for potential blindness? And you also refer to this year as a watershed uh, moment. Why why is that the case? Mark, that sounds like a clinical question to me. (laughs) Well... The, um, I mean, the technology is, is fairly straightforward in that a picture needs to be taken of the uh, uh, patient's retina, and this was, um, it's been considered a big advance to be able to do this in a primary care office, and then using a telemedicine-like connection, send that image to an ophthalmologist to be interpreted. What's exciting about this change is that the artificial intelligence that's embedded in the device that takes the picture is able to do an interpretation um, on the spot, and it says, it tells the, the patient well, the, or the person administering the, the exam that um, what type, what grade of retinopathy there is and the recommendation for follow-up. So you've, you've cut out um, the loop of having to go to the ophthalmologist, get the reading done, get back in touch with the patient. Uh, who are typically lost to follow-up or difficult to find, um, and you've got an answer there immediately. And so you've, you've eliminated several layers of complexity, and you um, there's, right now it's approved for use in primary care offices, but um, there's no reason this couldn't be done by a community health worker in the near future or done in a pop-up shop in a mall. Uh, and so the implications for access are huge. Great. So one of the one of the points I think worth noting here about AI more generally that comes out of the case would be what's the role of the human in, in the process? And so this really is, uh, I think, a good example of it's not artificial intelligence, it's augmented intelligence. So 
the basic screening occurs by the algorithm, the human being is is supposed to review the work of the of the the algorithm, especially if the algorithm says we have a problem here, uh, and the, so that the specialist is activated at that point. The flip side of that is it allows uh, the, the the clinician to focus on that work which they're most able to do. Uh, you don't want uh, a highly trained uh, specialist becoming numb at looking at uh, profile after or, or image after image after image. You want them to focus on those that are most likely to have uh, the need for them to do an interpretation as opposed to have mixed those in with, the, with large numbers where there will be no interpretation. An algorithm could do it. So, Greg, just to uh, dig a little deeper into that point, even if you don't eliminate the role of the human completely uh, in favor of the algorithm, does it make a difference what kind of human work will now be required and does that have implications for employment? Uh, in, in, in this field? Well, uh, and, and Mark should uh, weigh in on this, I, I would suggest that it has an implication in terms of the, the type of work that you'd want the screeners to be doing and who's doing that work, right? So there's, a, there's a, an implication for, let's say you're using uh, um, a nurse to do the work with, uh, with the AI. Well, that nurse needs to be equipped to be able to, to work with the, with the AI technology. Uh, similarly, somebody needs to be monitoring not just the output, but also the construction and updating of the algorithm itself. Well, that should be a highly trained individual doing that, perhaps in collaboration with the nurse. Uh, but that person isn't just the clinical, clinical expert. They need to know enough about the nature of AI to be involved in its, its not just the review of its work, but the review of its workings, right? So those are, uh, those are different skills that become important uh, as a result of employing uh, the, uh, the AI. Right. There, there are different skills required. There's a level of teamwork that's required. Uh, as far as the shift in employment, um, you know, the good news, at least for in the diabetic retinopathy area, is that we know that a large portion of the vulnerable population, which is increasing as diabetes becomes more prevalent in our society, is underserved. They're not getting the screening that they need. So I don't think there will be any shortage of um, exams uh, reviewed by the ophthalmologists. Uh, and the overall net uh, five, ten years out will be that we'll be screening much closer to 100% and we'll be um, really cutting down on the 90% of uh, preventable blindness that's occurring now. Um, so it's, it's very exciting in that respect. So, and that's, uh, so you end up with both primary and secondary costs, let alone the, the benefits of the human being about not being going blind. It's the cost to the society of do you, when do you catch this and, and how able are you to uh, treat it chronically as opposed to some kind of a acute or even irreparable damage? Now, you do bring up a good point. I think that it's augmented intelligence and the augmented provider is something that we um, talk about now. Um, but this is a change and change is uh, difficult for people. And um, this is an area where 
we're going to see a lot of work over the next, um, well, for ongoing, because um, the professional societies are ill-prepared for the shift in, that will occur, and the sense of uh, what it means to be uh, an ophthalmologist or a primary care physician or a nurse or that sort of thing, these are all shifting as Artificial intelligence provides this augmentation and allows people to do things that they just weren't able to do before. So it's both exciting and threatening at the same time. So, and Mark, uh, part of what the 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 practitioner is not equipped to do, at least as a non-practitioner, I'd suggest, is that they're not. Uh, equipped to think about this in terms of, back to the, the word used earlier, in terms of a system change in the, organi- in the nature of the practice. So how do you think about that? What are the dimensions? What would be involved in doing that? So they face two challenges. One is how do I think about this new technology in and of itself, but then also what are the opportunities and how would I drive change of the nature that we're talking about? And uh, Hopefully what we've done in the article is to provide information about both of those challenges. Right. And that's exactly uh, actually a really good segue to what I was going to ask about next, which is, uh, you know, how, if you could please explain how does the work systems model uh, and how, how can it be used to implement this technology? You identify eight levers of this model. Uh, and how they can be used to create a successful change initiative. So I was wondering if you could just help explain that. So the first step uh, would be, what are you actually trying to create? So this, we start with the notion of what's the, what's the the history of the future or the 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 the, the scene or scenes you'd like to see characterize the practice. If it's uh, that you simply want it to stay as it is but move faster in terms of the technology, then that's not the kind of change we're talking about. If you're talking about trying to change the place and the manner in which care is delivered, much in the spirit of what we've talked about in the last few minutes, then there needs to be a larger systems design. But first, what are you trying to do here? What's the reality you're trying to create? If what you're trying to create is the kind of change we're talking here, then uh, talking about here, then there are, from the model, suggests that there are at least eight levers that construct the environment around the people who would be using the technology that if you don't change, we would suggest at least four of those in a meaningful way, you're not changing the environment enough and people won't end up practicing in a fundamentally different way. So we talk about things about the like the design of space, the rewards that are available, what information is available, what protocols do you have, who makes what decisions. Uh, those, if constructed to try to drive a different kind of practice, will make it more likely that you actually end up with a different kind of practice rather than simply plugging the technology in and hoping that that might evolve. Odds are it will not. It'll end up being uh, a a minimal change and much more likely just running faster across old track. I don't know, Mark has probably got some thoughts here about making it more clinically real about what I just said. What do you think, Mark? 
Well, I think the um, I think the model explains it well in that um, if you deconstruct the or use the levers to to look at what changes are necessary, none of these are impossible at this point. Um, and uh, but it requires a level of leadership and commitment from an organization that says, uh, "Here's the." Um, Here's the desired end state. We want uh, better screening, uh, either within a group, of, within a practice, or within a group of practices at a population level. And we're going to consciously uh, redesign the work that we do. Um, but there's nothing uh, fundamentally. Uh, there's no fundamental barriers to uh, implementing this. The information flow, the ability to change the rewards, the uh, design of the workplace. Um, how decisions are made. Um, like a lot of uh, major changes, uh, when you get right down to it, it's not the technology, it's the, it's the politics of the situation. Just to <clears throat> follow up a little bit more on that, what are the risks involved if uh, uh, leaders fail to think through the factors that you've just described? And how, how should they measure the success or failure of their transformation efforts? Well, uh, let me just jump in on that, that I see that this is an interesting time in healthcare where, you know, been doing this for a long time and uh, trying to affect change in a variety of areas. What's different now uh, are the sort of social drivers of the economic uh, uh, crisis that we're going through and the cost of healthcare and um, the bubbling up of alternatives to traditional health systems. So the major threat... Um, to a health system is by not doing this and saying, well, we're the dominant player and we're just going to continue to do what we do, is that, um, A, the population's underserved, but they will also suffer from uh, the rapid entrant of um, competitors who are able to um, bring all the pieces together and seamlessly uh, deliver this sort of screening. Um, and the payers, the people who are responsible for the distribution of funds in the system, uh, are eager to uh, bring some competition to bear. And so inaction at this point is really um, not an option. Uh, Greg? One, uh, arguably the biggest loss would be the loss of yet another opportunity to both uh, provide a higher level of care to more people and to lower the cost. Uh, so that opportunity is missed if one doesn't uh, take advantage of the opening that this, uh, that, that this uh, creates. Relatedly, uh, I would suggest that many organizations, and certainly healthcare organizations, uh, this is an opportunity to learn in a reasonably confined area. I mean, this is not... Uh, trying to change the entire system. It's, a, it's the provision of a particular type of test. Inside, it's an important test, but inside a particular service line. Uh, so it's an opportunity to learn how to do this work. And organizations that uh, are active in their own learning are more likely to be able to pull off this type of change repeatedly and also be able to scale so they get better at doing deeper and broader kinds of changes. So, but it's an acquired skill. So uh, we're almost out of time, but I have one last question for each of you. And Mark, maybe I could ask you first. Uh, in addition to uh, the retinal screening of diabetics, 
Which other areas in healthcare do you think would benefit the most from implementing AI-based technology solutions? Well, uh, this this type of AI technology is having already having massive impact in radiology, the interpretation of images um, from simple radiographs all the way through complex MRI scans and that sort of thing. Um, it's um, impacting any type of uh, Im- image analysis of things like uh, teledermatology, or so the analysis of is this mole benign or is it malignant? Does it need to come off? Um, it's allowing people to get screening and, and make decisions quicker. But you're seeing AI being applied not just at the point of care, but throughout the systems. Uh, very sophisticated work being done now on complex data sets to do risk analysis. Uh, which patients are suitable for surgery, which ones aren't, who's going to be readmitted to the hospital, where do we need to apply our um, precious resources to really have maximal impact. We're seeing it up and down the chain. Uh, Greg, any final comments from you? Well, hopefully we'll end up seizing more of these moments inside healthcare. Uh, the the dynamic that uh, Mark named early on, which is the growing percentage of the of the GDP, the rising cost, the the by Western standards mediocre overall performance of the healthcare system, not the potential or the high end performance. Uh, so we've been talking about this for decades. Uh, Truman talked about it in in the forties. Roosevelt talked about it in the early forties, right? So this is a long-standing challenge. At some point, we have to deal with it. It's a little like talking, when does California have the big earthquake? It's going to come. We just don't know when. Eventually, whether it's tomorrow or whether it's uh, years from now, this is exactly the kind of challenge that healthcare has to handle. And hopefully, it will be able to do it in a proactive way, looking at this as opportunity as opposed to having it uh, – evolve in some kind of vice grip that eventually cracks it in some fashion. Great. Well, uh, 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 Greg, Mark, thank you so much for writing this uh, very insightful uh, article for Knowledge at Wharton. It's been a pleasure speaking to both of you about it. Thank you. Thank you so much. For more insight from Knowledge at Wharton, please visit knowledge.wharton.upenn.edu. 